Well, good evening, everyone. Please turn in Mark's Gospel to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10 is found on page 1165 of the Pew Bible. Mark chapter 10, we're going to read verses 1 to 12. Listen, this is God's word. Then he arose from there and came to the region of Judea, by the other side of the Jordan. And multitudes gathered to him again, as he was accustomed, and he taught them again. The Pharisees came and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Testing him. And he answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. And Jesus answered and said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So then, they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. In the house, his disciples also asked him again about the same matter. And so he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Amen. May God bless us through reading of his word. Well, tomorrow is the first working Monday of January and is also known as Divorce Day. So many marriages come under strain over the Christmas holidays that it results in the largest number of divorces being filed at the start of the year. And so the sermon is very timely. But this subject of marriage and divorce is not an easy subject. It's deeply sensitive because it probably affects everyone in this room in some way or another. And so these verses can be troubling and uncomfortable. John Stott puts it well when he said, uh, in writing about this, he writes, I confess to a basic reluctance to attempt an exposition of these verses. This is partly because divorce is a controversial and complex subject, but even more because it is a subject which touches people's emotions at a deep level. There is almost no unhappiness so poignant as the unhappiness of an unhappy marriage, and almost no tragedy so great as the degeneration of what God meant for love and fulfillment into a non-relationship of bitterness, discord, and despair. Later he says, I am convinced that the teaching of Jesus on this and every subject is good, intrinsically good, good for individuals, good for society, that I take my courage in both hands and write on. And so in a similar vein, let us courageously be open to hearing what Jesus has to say on this subject. And while it's impossible to cover everything on the subject in the sermon, I do hope you see that God's design for marriage is good and you're not to be seeking a get-out clause, but instead you're to replicate God's original design and that you can only do by his grace. So firstly, you're to listen to Jesus in verses 1 and 2. 
Now, as you know, the second half of Mark's gospel is focused not so much on Jesus' identity, that's the first half, but it's now on his mission. The mission would culminate in Jerusalem, where he would be rejected by the chief priests, where he would be killed, and after three days, he would rise. And this is what Jesus has prophesied. He's, this is, this, he's prophesied now the this, this second time. And so he is intentionally fulfilling his mission by traveling to Jerusalem. In the passage, we find Jesus journeying south. And I hope you picked up a handout because in that handout, you'll see a map. And uh, you'll see after Jesus left the region of Galilee, he's now in the region of Judea. And he's traveling south. Mark records that he's on the other side of the River Jordan um, and in the region of Perea. Mark is careful to include this fact because the region of Perea is significant. Herod Antipas is the ruler of this region. And we'll see why that's important later in the sermon. But while Jesus is on this journey, crowds of people, multitudes, come out to see him. And Jesus responds by teaching them. And doesn't that show his love and his compassion for the people? He takes every opportunity to make sure they understand God's law. Consider who their teachers had been. They were taught by the Pharisees, who put them under an excessive burden by adding to the law, and they twisted God's law so it would fit their own agendas. But in doing so, they made it troublesome for the people. Instead, the people, and you and I, we are to recognize that God's law, it reflects God's character. And since God is good, his law is good. And his law is for your good. And so Jesus here helps you to understand God's law in regards to marriage. It is for your good. At the transfiguration, God the Father spoke saying, this is my son, Listen to him. Jesus is to be listened to. But the Pharisees would not listen to Jesus. And so Jesus faced opposition on his journey. We read of the Pharisees coming and they ask him a question. And this is no innocent question. This question is a trap. They are hoping to undermine Jesus in front of the people to stop them from listening to Jesus. Mark describes how they came to test Jesus. And that's the same word that Mark used to describe Satan testing Jesus in the wilderness. And so we see what the Pharisees were up to. They were here to hinder Jesus. And they did it in the same way as Satan. They would mishandle scripture. No wonder Jesus said in John 8, 44, you are off your father the devil and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. The Pharisees were accomplishing Satan's desires. In their delusion, they were trying to stop Jesus. And in doing so, they were threatening to thwart Jesus in his mission. But Jesus does not fall for their tests. His goal is always to complete the mission which his father had given him to do. He came to rescue his people, as you and I, as ones who are trusting in Jesus and in his mission of rescuing us from our sin by dying on the cross and rising again. And so in response, let's listen to Jesus, to what he has to say. 
particularly in regard to this subject of marriage. Well, secondly, beware of looking for loopholes in God's law. So beware of looking for loopholes in God's law, verses 2 to 4. The Pharisees' question for Jesus is about divorce. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? This was not an abstract issue that they're bringing up. Divorce was permissible in first century Palestine, but there were two schools of thought within Judaism. There was the school of Shammai, who said you can only divorce your wife on the grounds of sexual immorality. And then there was another school of thought, the school of Hillel, uh, which was much more relaxed. You could basically divorce your wife over something very simple, a very minor issue. So if you weren't happy with her cooking, that would be grounds for divorce. But both schools of thought took the view that divorce is acceptable. The issue instead is, are there legitimate grounds for divorce? The Pharisees asked Jesus what his views are. Would he fall into the school of Shammai, the strict view, or the school of Hillel, the more relaxed view? And this was not an innocent question. As I said earlier, it's a loaded question. The Pharisees, they did not believe that Jesus kept the law. They did not agree with his teaching on how to live a holy life because of the people he mixed with. He ate with sinners and tax collectors. They did not agree with his view on the Sabbath because he believed he was right to heal someone on the Sabbath day. So the Pharisees, they were more concerned about the externals. They were more concerned about keeping the letter of the law than the spirit of the law, meaning they were only interested in ticking boxes. Their hearts were not involved. And so they looked for what they could get away with. What loophole was available to them that would allow them to divorce uh, their wife? And this would benefit them so that they would get out of their marriage responsibilities. But it would not only be to their benefit. As I said, where Jesus is traveling through is significant. Jesus is in the region of Perea, where Herod is ruling. And Herod had divorced his wife, so he could marry his brother's wife, Herodias. John the Baptist had taught that this was not lawful, and it ended up costing John his life. Herod had John beheaded. And one commentator even suggests that the Pharisees' motive here was to get Jesus into trouble with Herod, so that Herod would have him killed. So how did Jesus respond to these Pharisees? Well, he knew what they were up to. And so he responds by asking them a question. He texts them to scripture. It's just like how Jesus responded to the devil when the devil tested him. And Jesus responds to the Pharisees by asking them, what does Moses command? In other words, what do the scriptures teach? That's a good reminder for us. We can be like the Pharisees. We can be interested only in the loopholes that benefit us in the short term rather than understanding what the Bible actually teaches. That's why it's important to continue to study the whole of God's word, to be willing to be challenged and rebuked. That's what God's word will do in your life. It is recognizing that God's law is good, and so respond to it with obedience, even when it's difficult. So thirdly, let's notice, recognize that divorce was permitted because of sin, Verses 4 and 5. So verse 4 we read, their, their response was that Moses permitted divorce. 
And they get this from Deuteronomy chapter 24. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house. And Jesus responds to this by saying, it's because of the hardness of your hearts that Moses wrote this precept. Divorce was not part of God's original plan, but because of sin entering the world, because of the sinfulness of man's heart. That's why Moses wrote this commandment. And the original intent of this commandment was to protect women. Difficulties in marriage is not a new problem. It's always existed, right from the beginning. But in Moses' day, women were in a very vulnerable position. A husband may no longer be faithful to his wife, but the wife was powerless and had to remain in the marriage even though her husband was with another woman. And so the certificate of divorce allowed the woman to leave that broken marriage and remarry again. And it's a merciful thing. It protected women. It was to stop women facing even worse abuse or abandonment, all while still married to her husband. Wilmhurst says it is there only as a concession to human sin. And so divorce, therefore, is the lesser of two evils in this situation. It is a mercy to women who had done nothing wrong and who could produce this certificate of divorce to say that she had been put away. Well, by Jesus' day, Moses' concession had been twisted. The religious leaders could not agree upon what was meant by not finding favor in his eyes. And so some were saying that that could mean even trivial things. One rabbi suggested that the phrase finding no favor in his eyes meant that a man could divorce his wife if he found another woman who was more beautiful. And so as a result, the Pharisees were more interested not in protecting marriages, but in what was liable for divorce. What the Pharisees were missing was the reason for Moses permitting divorce. It was to create a legal barrier to stop men sinning as they pleased. It was to help protect women and limit the consequences of the husband's sin. It was to help men realize their vows and so encourage them to take their marriage vows seriously. But the Pharisees had twisted Moses' law into it becoming a license for an easy divorce. Ferguson writes, little did they realize that they had already revealed the inner workings of their hearts and indicated they were out of tune with the author of Scripture. So these Pharisees, the supposable men of God, who were there to be a guide to the people in what God's law taught, rather than searching for the exception, they should have been teaching what God wants in marriage. And that should be evident today. A couple who is experiencing difficulty in their marriage Their first question should not be, do they have grounds for a divorce? Instead, it should be, how can we repent of our sin? How can we stay true to our marriage vows? My sister-in-law is an attorney, and she was telling us that reconciliation should always be the first step. Too often, divorce is seen as a solution. But it's not a solution, especially when children are involved. Divorce only leads to its own problems. Culture today is all about gaining a quick divorce. 
But it's an interesting statistic that those who marry for a second time have an even greater chance of divorcing for a second time. This year, the UK will be using new divorce laws similar to the divorce laws here in the US. Before, there had to be a period of separation which could last up to two years. Now a couple can be divorced in the space of 20 weeks. And the reason for this change is because this length of time was seen as too painful. But the breakdown of marriage is always painful, and it should be painful. It's not to be done lightly. God permitted divorce because of sin, but it was not part of his original design for marriage. Well, fourthly, notice that you're to recognize that God's design for marriage is good, verses 6 and 9. So Jesus takes the Pharisees back to the beginning, back to creation. These Pharisees were looking at the exception passage. Well, Jesus takes them to the principal passage of marriage, to the original law of marriage, which is found in Genesis 2, verse 24. Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. These words, also written by Moses, Jesus is teaching the Pharisees and the crowds and you and I today what marriage is really all about. We live in a time when marriage is being attacked and redefined. But God is the creator and he created marriage. And so he gets to define it. Marriage, therefore, is a creational ordinance. It's foundational. No government in this world has the power to change the definition of marriage. Now, if you buy an appliance and it's not working, you go to the instruction booklet. Well, if marriage is not working, well, you need to go back to the instruction book to find out what it is and what it is not. Well, God defines marriage to be between a man and a woman. Two men are not to marry. Two women are not to marry. It's only to be a couple, a man and a woman. Two genders are to come together in a relationship a relationship that's exclusive. And we have to understand that marriage requires commitment. Marriage is to be a lifelong commitment. The marriage vow is as long as we both shall live, not as long as we both shall love. It's not dependent on your emotional feelings. You hear of couples ending their marriage because they no longer love one another. No, you're making a promise in the presence of God to be committed to your wife to be committed to your husband. And that includes in difficult times. Jesus says what God has joined together, man is not to separate. Therefore, we are to recognize God's providence in our marriage. God is sovereign. He brings together husbands and wives in marriage. Now, sometimes we may question the suitability of marriage partners, but when they are married, they are not to be separated. Maybe you're questioning your marriage, but now that you are married, you are to be committed to your marriage. The bond of marriage is so strong that it's described as one flesh. And Jesus even repeats this to emphasize this point. And this is not simply speaking of sexual union, although it is that. Sex is to be reserved within the marriage bond. Sex is not to be used casually. But this one flesh is speaking of more than that. It's speaking of a relationship that is closer than even that of a parent and a child. In a marriage, your thoughts, your decisions, 
your desires, they are all to be from the perspective of us. You are now one. Too often our commitment is to our own happiness, to our own comfort. We look for fulfillment in our marriage. And when our wife or husband does not fulfill us, when he or she doesn't make us happy, we think it's okay to forsake the marriage. No, that's not what marriage is. That instead is a mindset of an individual. In a marriage, you are now a unit. And so that is how you are to operate. You're not to think only of your own happiness, but the happiness of you as a couple. McCoy says, God is calling us here to fight for our marriages, to work hard at protecting the sacred covenant bond. Don't let a thirst for happiness destroy your call to holiness. Wilmer says we should focus on that oneness and not even think about pulling the relationship apart. God's purpose here is for the man and woman to be united and to stay together. And so because of this oneness, we are to respect marriage. You're not to come in between a marriage. You're not to encourage divorce. This will mean different things to different people. So parents, when your children marry, you are to have a healthy distance from them. You are to let your married children make their own decisions as a couple. You have to respect that they will do it differently than the way that you did it. Friends of those who are married, well, you have to respect both members of the marriage. When there are difficulties, you have to encourage reconciliation. You have to remind them of their marriage commitment. You're not to come in between a marriage. Wisdom and care is necessary, but you are not the cause of problems within a couple's marriage by causing jealousy or mistrust. You're to recognize that marriage is good. It is part of God's design. That doesn't mean it will be easy. For some couples, it can be very difficult. But you are to honor marriage, whether it's your own marriage or whether it's other people's marriages. And you who are single, you too are to honor marriage and you're to trust in God's good design for marriage. And that will mean waiting. That will mean trusting in him. So remember, God's design for marriage is good. Ferguson writes, stability of family and society life depended on the marriage institution being honored. If this basic creation design were overthrown, moral, spiritual, psychological, and social chaos will result. And don't we see that in the world all around us? There is much brokenness, much chaos, which, is, which has and will have an effect on generations to come. And so we as a society need to replicate God's design for marriage. Well, finally, you need God's grace in your marriage, verses 10 to 12. You need God's grace in your marriage. So the disciples, they take up the discussion again behind closed doors. In the privacy of the home they were staying in, they asked Jesus again about marriage and divorce. In Matthew's gospel, we read of the disciples saying it's better not to marry. While what Jesus is saying is just too demanding, it's too extreme, it's not possible. The disciples clearly have been influenced by the Pharisees and by the culture around them. Yes, marriage is demanding. You can't just walk out of your marriage. It's not that simple. You can't simply have a second go and marry again. 
Jesus teaches his disciples that if you divorce your spouse and remarry, you are committing adultery. Interestingly, Mark notes that a woman also has a right to initiate a divorce. But in doing so, she also is committing adultery if she marries again. Now, Mark does not mention the exception to this. Matthew and Luke's gospel both mention the exception of sexual immorality. And Mark doesn't mention this exception because it is assumed. It's obvious that sexual immorality would be grounds for a divorce. But Jesus, in these final verses, he is being firm because he knew that marriage was part of God's good creation. Jesus, in his work, whether it's in his miracles, whether it's in his teaching, he's seeking to restore the world as to how God originally created it. And that includes marriage. But Jesus is not denying that marriage is hard. Marriage brings together two sinners in an intimate way to live life together. I find it interesting how Hollywood movies portray these romantic movies. They're happy, there's no arguments, there's no difficulties in the marriage. It's all made to look easy. And yet the actors themselves have been married multiple times. Clearly, it's not that easy. Marriage is hard. And Jesus is also not shocked by the hardship that you find in marriage. He recognizes your marriage is marred by sin. And that's why he came into this world. Yes, to save you from your sins, but also to rescue your marriages from the brokenness of sin, to give you his grace, to enable you to love, to forgive you of your sin, so you can show forgiveness to others, to your spouse, to humble you, to recognize that you need help, even in your marriage, to teach you what love is, a sacrificial dying to yourself. Peter speaks of how Jesus' divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So yes, your marriage may be difficult, but in Christ, you have the grace that you need. The Pharisees taught that you can simply get out of marriage and they would find an exception to make that possible. And the world teaches the same. If it's too hard, just leave. You deserve to be fulfilled. No, God's design for marriage is good. You're not to be seeking a get-out clause, but instead you're to replicate God's original design, and you can do so only by his grace. And so as you get through tomorrow, divorce day, as you get through every day, God's grace will sustain you. Whether you're experiencing difficulties in your marriage or whatever it is you're facing, you are to know God's sustaining grace. And remember in Christ, you have the perfect husband. Christ is your bridegroom. He loves you. He has committed himself to you, even dying for you. And that's incredible when we think how poor a spouse that we have been. We have forsaken him many times, going after other lovers. We have sought our own happiness rather than remain true to him. But Christ takes us back and continues to love us. So give thanks for your heavenly bridegroom, for Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, this is a hard subject. Marriage can be difficult. And so, Lord, we do pray for grace uh, to sustain us even in hard times. 
We ask, Lord, that you would remind us of how marriage is part of your good design, that we instead would commit ourselves to our marriages and that you would give us the strength to do so. We thank you for Jesus Christ, our bridegroom, how in him we are secure, how in him we have a loving relationship, for he is faithful. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please turn in your psalm book to Psalm 45c. Psalm 45 is known as the wedding psalm, and it speaks here of a king marrying his bride, which points to Christ marrying his church. And so give thanks for Christ your bridegroom, who gave his life for you, his church. So stand and sing Psalm 45c.